one word that I'm seeing a lot in um, theological and psychological literature, literature that's been recently published is the word wholeness. Wholeness. That's a word that um, describes what I think so many of us want but feel that we definitely don't have. You know, we all feel fragmented. We all feel, I would say, pulled, you know, in a thousand different directions. I think that this fragmentation, this sense of not really having our hands on anything properly is almost a universal feeling. You know, we feel pulled in a million different directions, no matter what our sociological background is, no matter how much money we make, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our education level. There's a Washington Post journalist named Bridget Schulte who recently conducted a, uh, a comprehensive social study on the frantic lives of Americans today. And in that study, in the paper she wrote, she likened modern American culture to this, quote, to the aimless whirl of ants whose anthill has just been stomped on. The brainless rushing about makes us feel time-starved, which does not result in death, but rather, as ancient philosophers observed, in never beginning to live. Sometimes, do you feel like you're like an aimless ant? (laughs) Do you feel like you're not really living at all, but merely, you know, just surviving? I think that all of us, from time to time, feel torn and divided. We feel uninspired and unfocused. We feel that way in our relationships. We feel that way in our work lives. We feel that way in our spiritual lives. We lack wholeness. We lack a sense of unified purpose. We lack what I'm calling joyous integrity. Joyous integrity. This ancient book, this ancient letter of James, which we find in the latter part of the New Testament, um, is written for people like us, I'm persuaded. The book is written to help people journey toward wholeness, to help people journey towards joyous integrity in their lives. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's so relevant and important for us today, and it's why we're going to spend the next eight weeks working through it together. Let me give you a little bit of background about this letter. James, the man who wrote this letter, was known as James the Just. He was the brother of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet when Jesus was doing his ministry, he was not a follower of Jesus. After Jesus was raised from the dead, somehow James was convinced that Jesus, his brother, is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. He was converted and became one of the major leaders in the ancient church, particularly the church located in the city of Jerusalem. So James is writing this letter, he says in 1-1 to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now that's a Jewish reference that's used to refer to the church, the ancient church of the New Testament. He was probably writing to a number of local churches in what is now Turkey. It used to be called Asia Minor. And these churches were persecuted churches. They were dispersed. They were minority churches in their culture in the ancient world. Why are we going to study James for the next few weeks? Well, I've already mentioned the fact that it's really about us gaining more and more integrity and wholeness in our lives. But it's also, I think, deeply important and meaningful because it's really one of the most practical books in all of the scripture. It it has more imperative verbs, more commands 
per verse than any other book in the whole New Testament. It's an extremely practical, extremely useful letter for us to study together, particularly given where we are in American culture today. And also, following our study of the Gospel of Mark, I think it's appropriate for us to study James together. So as we go through this story, this letter in the next eight weeks, we're going to see again and again how God is at work in our lives, bringing us to wholeness, bringing us to joyous integrity. He's helping us to develop a faith that works, a faith that actually transform our lives. And today, as we open the letter, we're going to see in particular how God uses trials in our life, how God uses hardships how God uses the suffering that we experience in life to form us into his image, to make us whole. Here's a way I think we can summarize the main idea that I want to communicate to you this morning. Consider the trials you face in life as joy because God is unchangeably good. That's the main point. Consider the trials you face in life as joy because God is unchangeably good. Three points. Consider trials as joy. Consider what you need and consider God's goodness. Okay. So let's look at the the scripture together this morning. First, James tells us to consider trials as joy. Notice the first thing he writes after the greeting, verse two, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. If you're familiar with the Bible, especially the New Testament, you might know that a lot of letters start with uh, long greetings and prayers. The apostle Paul will say, grace and peace to you. James doesn't do any of that. (laughs) It's all omitted. James just immediately says, first thing, if you are struggling, if you are undergoing pain and adversity, consider it as joy. Consider it as joy. Now, don't let the familiarity you may have with this idea or with this passage could cause you to miss how really how crazy this is, to be honest how radical it is, how countercultural it is. Maybe it's even offensive to you and strikes you as naive. I want you to just sit for a moment intellectually and emotionally in what James is telling us here right off the bat. When you go through suffering, when you go through trials, you should think of it as joy. Notice he doesn't say if you go through trials, right? He says when. When you go through trials, consider it joy. Trials are going to happen. You're going to battle in life. You're going to get smacked around. You're going to have to endure if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. In The Princess Bride, at one point, Wesley says to Buttercup, life is pain. Anyone else who says differently is selling something. Life is pain, Highness. Not the most encouraging word to hear, but it's the first thing James throws at us. He says, you are going to experience hardship. There is going to be difficulty. There's going to be pain in life. It's not a win or it's an if. It's not an if, it's a win. And notice that he also says, when you experience various trials, you know, that's intended to be an inclusive, encompassing term. Your current struggle, no matter what it is this morning, is included here. So at the very beginning, let's just think for a moment together. Think about what your trials are right now. And let's embed our lives into the story of scripture here. Let's let our minds and our hearts saturate in what James is asking of us. He is asking to consider whatever suffering we're experiencing, whatever trials we're experiencing as joy. A marriage that feels really painful and hard. Consider it as joy. James says, 
a child that is rebelling and running away from Jesus. Consider it as joy. A school situation that you dread. Consider it as joy. A bad work environment where you're underpaid or mistreated or unhappy or misused. Consider it as joy. A spiritual fight against sin or sadness. Consider it as joy. Physical sickness and suffering. Consider it as joy. Mental illness, depression, addictions. Consider it as joy. What? What? You know, the obvious question is why? Why in the world, James, should we consider all of these things joyful? Why should we be glad that any of this stuff is happening to us? Well, that's what James says next. It's not because the trials and the suffering in and of themselves are joyous, but you are to count it as joy that you are facing them because they are purposeful. He writes that the testing of our faith, verse 3, produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete or whole, lacking in nothing. Listen, the primary tool that God uses in your life to shape and mold you into a whole person, a person with joyous integrity, is suffering, is difficulty. You know, that's hard for us. It's very hard. And the reason, part of the reason it's hard is because we all want our spiritual life to be like, to be like taking a limitless pill. Have you seen the movie Limitless, the new TV show? I think it's a new TV show. It's a movie that has Bradley Cooper in it. It came out seven or eight years ago. And they developed some pharmaceutical company develops this pill. And when you take the pill, you know, all of a sudden 100% of your brain power begins to function. And so Bradley Cooper gets a hold of this pill and becomes like a savant and makes all kinds of money on Wall Street. And he's just a relational guru. Like he's got it all together. And things go bad, of course, down the line. It's a pretty cool movie. And we want our spiritual lives to be like that. Just pop a pill, boom, immediately sufferings go away. We've got everything pulled together. We don't have to fight. We don't have to endure. We don't have to battle. Listen, I've got to be honest with you. That's not at all the way the New Testament portrays the Christian life. It's not a microwave scheme, you see. The Christian life is a crockpot scheme. It takes time. It involves going through fire in order to be shaped into Jesus' image. The great author, George MacDonald, who was a friend and a mentor of C.S. Lewis, writes this, The Son of God suffered unto the death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. That is, purposeful and redemptive. Listen, I think that this is without question one of the most important truths for you and for me to digest as we seek to understand Christianity, as we seek to understand Jesus. Listen, suffering is going to come. And as it comes, it's, it's not to be received as a stoic, with sort of a cognitive dissonance, with a passive indifference to the trials. Nor is it to be received like some sort of you know, sadomasochist who's just doing it for the fun of it and thinks that the suffering itself is fun. No, suffering is to be received as something that is not good. It's a result of sin and the fall, but it is being used by God for a purpose. It exists, James says, to bring about spiritual wholeness, to make us mature and complete. So practically, maybe even today you can ask yourself, maybe right now, how might God be using my current suffering 
to refine me and form me into a whole spiritually integrity-based person. Can you begin to see maybe some of the ways by the power of the Spirit that God is doing that in your life? Can you then perhaps begin to take joy in what God is doing in the big picture of your story? If you're going to consider suffering and trials as joy, there's no doubt that you're going to need help. I'm going to need help. And so James tells us not just to consider trials as joy, but he also asks us to consider what we need. In four, second part of verse 4, he says that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse 5, if any of you lacks, so he's implying there that we all lack something. We're going to need help on the journey to spiritual wholeness, on the journey to joyous integrity, particularly as that journey takes us through trials, as that journey takes us through difficulty. And so James gives really quickly in these, three, in these few verses three things that we all are going to need. And by the way, he's going to come back to all of these issues in more detail later in the letter. He's just introducing them right now. So briefly, let me show you, secondly, three things that James says we need. First, he says, you will need wisdom. There in verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 implies that we will need wisdom on the journey. In the scriptures, the word wisdom, that word means the ability to apply what you know and believe to the particulars of your life. Wisdom is the ability to apply what you know and believe to the particulars of your life. And it's a major focus in James, and we're going to speak more about it later in the series. But for now, just look at what James says. If you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all, verse 5, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, that is an incredible promise, right? That's an amazing thing to read. James is really echoing here his brother, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In a place like Matthew 7, very famously, Jesus says, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and it will be given to you. Yet James goes on to say that we must ask with integrity. We must ask with a sense of wholeness. He says in verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, it's not that we can never entertain any doubt in our life whatsoever. Rather, the, the idea here is that if we ask God for wisdom, but really in our heart of hearts, we're thinking, there's no way God's going to do this for me then we cannot expect, if that's our mental and spiritual state, for God to answer. That makes us like a wave on the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. He's saying that when we ask for wisdom, we must ask with faith that God really does want to grant it to us. You will need wisdom. Secondly, you will need perspective. Verses 9 through 11. We will particularly need perspective when it comes to wealth. Look at these verses. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. In other words, both the rich man and the poor man are to see their wealth or their poverty, respectively, from a spiritual perspective. You know, the rich man is supposed to be able to say, all of these riches mean nothing compared with having God's grace in my life. And conversely, the poor man is supposed to be able to say, I may have next to nothing in this world, but if all I have is Jesus, I have more than I need. Now, just just a piece of application here briefly, okay? One of the main ways that God will ask you to endure 
on the road to wholeness, on the journey to joyous integrity, is with regard to money. That's all over the New Testament. And the reason that that's one of the main ways that God will test us is because we all tend to believe that money, that riches, will make us secure. Come on, pastor. I don't really think that. Money's not that big a deal to me. I don't care how much I make. Really? Ask yourself a few questions. Can you give money away? Can you not worry if you get a 50% pay cut or if you lose your job? Can you once and for all stop wishing that you had more and possessed more? Can you never again compare yourself with others? That's what I thought. It's an issue for all of us, believing the lie that wealth will make us secure, will destroy us. It will divide us. It will reduce our ability to experience the integrity, the wholeness, the life that Jesus wants for us. The Bible teaches us that all over the place. A couple of examples. In the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5, the author writes this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with, with his income. This also is vanity. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 6, says this, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is though through this craving that some have wandered away from the path and pierced themselves with many pangs. You're going to need wisdom on the journey through suffering. You're going to need perspective, particularly with regard to wealth on the journey through suffering. And then thirdly, you're going to need fortitude. You're going to need fortitude on the journey through suffering. That's what he's getting at there in verses 12, 13, 14, 15. He repeats the main thesis there in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. In other words, we will all need fortitude in the journey if we're going to receive the prize at the end. In particular, James is saying we're going to need a theological fortitude. What does that mean? Well, it means that we must remain steadfast in the way we view God. In trials, you see, we have a tendency to blame God when bad things are happening. And furthermore, we have a tendency to blame God when we respond poorly in the midst of trials. We blame God for the trials, and then we blame God for our response to the trials. But James here is reminding us that God is not to be blamed. God is not able to be tempted, and God doesn't tempt us, verse 13. Rather, our own evil desires, he writes, bring forth sin and death. In other words, as we walk the journey to wholeness, we are going to be tempted, we are going to be tempted to doubt God and to blame God, right? And James is saying, hang in there. Fight against doubt. Fight against the evil one who wants you to to turn on God. We need fortitude. We need strength. And that leads James to the third point for today. He asks us to consider trials as joy, to consider what we need, wisdom and perspective and fortitude. And then thirdly, to consider God's goodness, okay? And we see that especially in these last three verses, 16 through 18. These are, these are great verses. 
James says that every good thing we have comes down to us from God. James is telling us that it is in his nature as father to give us good gifts. And listen, I know because I have the same tendencies. I know that we often find that hard to believe, especially when we are suffering, right? Especially when we face trials. And James is here encouraging us to see that all of our trials are painful, but they are not punitive. They are painful, but they are not punitive. Or to put it another way, the way we view God informs the way we view our trials. The way we view God informs the way we view our suffering. One of my heroes in the Christian life and in preaching is a man named Sinclair Ferguson. He was one of my seminary professors, and he's also a preacher, pastor. And um, he tells a great story, a great illustration that illustrates the way many of us tend to view God. He, he asks us to imagine that our father, when we're children, and our father is taking us to you know, a huge toy store. Say, you know, there's this like four-story toy store in Times Square in New York City, and you're on a trip, and you and your dad get to go in, and nothing from, from wall to wall, first, second, third, fourth floor, it's nothing but toys, nothing but awesome things that you would love to have, and you walk around with your father. He shows you this toy, and you talk about how awesome it would be to have that, and how cool it would be able to, to be able to play with this together. And then on your way out, your dad looks down at you and he says, wouldn't it be great to get some of these things? Wouldn't it be great if we could have some of these gifts, some of these toys? And you say, yeah, dad, that would be awesome. Will you get anything for me? And your dad says, no, I'm not getting you any of these. You're not worthy of any of this. Are you kidding me? Let's get out of here and go meet mom and or mom and the other kids for lunch. That's often the way we view God. He's almost as if he's toying with us. He shows us all these good gifts. He shows us all these blessings. He gives us, you know, the opportunity to see what we think are other people experiencing life and health and happiness, but we don't ever get any of it. We view God not as a gracious father who gives us all good gifts, but as someone who doesn't really like us that much after all. Someone who might be angry with us when we mess up. As someone who really doesn't see us as worthy of any of the gifts, who just says, you don't deserve any of those. Come on, we're leaving. Listen, the core of the Christian faith says that that is absolutely not what God is like. God gives every good gift. It's in his nature to be a giver. Everything we have in life that is good comes from him. And, and furthermore, Everything we have in life that is hard, God is wisely and lovingly using for our long-term good. Think about that. Anything that ever happens to you, anything, if you think it is good, then it's from God. If you think or know it is bad, that's also from God, and he is using it for your long-term good. If that's true, if you can see God in that light, if you can see God as the scriptures represent and present God, it will change the way you view your own trials, your own suffering. And furthermore, James says that God doesn't change in this regard. 17, he is the father of lights. 
in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God, James is saying, will always give us all good gifts. God will always be there for us. God will always use trials to bring us to wholeness for our greater good. Therefore, we can take joy, even in suffering, even in trials. Alec Montyer, a commentator on James, writes this. There is no way in which we might come to God in our need and find that he is unwilling, unable, or unavailable. And we know that this is true because he has already given us, you see. He has already given us the greatest gift. That's the point of verse 18. Of his own will, James tells us, God brought us forth through the word of truth, through the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That is an incredible statement. That's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful truth. Listen, just think about it this way. God does not have buyer's remorse with you. God knew what he was doing when he chose you in Christ from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, Ephesians chapter 1. God knew what he was doing when he was buying you with the precious blood of Jesus spilled on the cross for your sin to be pardoned. God is not looking for a return policy for you. That's what James is telling you here. That is gospel truth. Listen, God knows your failings and your shortcomings and your fears, and he still gives grace. He still, James tells us, brought you forth by the word of truth. He still brings you into his family by adoption. Listen, you might feel like you can, you can never get the wisdom you need to make it. You need to hear that God is for you. He's a generous giver of all good things. You might feel like you are unstable, like a wave in the sea, that you're constantly floating around through life, divided and a mess. God is not bothered by you. God sent Jesus to take all of your mess on himself at the cross and to renew all things, including your life. You might feel like that, you know, I'm in church today. I feel like God is okay with me. But tomorrow, if I really screw up, he's going to turn on me in a flash. Listen, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not change. There is no variation. There is no shadow of turning. He is not looking, you, looking at you and thinking, well, I've got to find the receipt somewhere. <laughs> Let me dig through the trash. This is not what I thought. This doesn't work. This toy's broken. I'm taking it back. No, 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 no. That is not the way that God thinks of you. He doesn't think, I'm not getting what I paid for with this one. No. You are a part of God's family. You are adored and beloved. You are free in Jesus Christ by faith. You are justified. You are radiant. Your sin and your guilt and your brokenness and your pain, all of that has been pardoned already. In Jesus Christ's death at the cross. Can you believe that? Do you believe that? Here's the point. If you can consider God's unchanging goodness to you in the gospel, then you can consider trials a joy. If God was good enough to send Jesus to die and redeem you from death 
and brokenness and hell and sin. And if God doesn't ever change, then surely God knows what he's doing now when sending you things that aren't pleasant to experience. When you see that the gospel is true, then you can trust God to bring you to wholeness through the journey of suffering, through the journey of trials. That's what James, through the Holy Spirit's inspired power, wants of us. He wants us to believe that. Can you embrace that truth this morning? Even as you experience things that are terrible, even as you have to endure, can you trust that God knows what he's doing and that God is unchangingly good to you. Uh, John Newton is an 18th century English pastor. And uh, there is a collection of pastoral letters that was recently republished by Banner of Truth that he wrote to a bunch of his parishioners in um, you know, the 1700s in England. And it's like a pastoral gold line, treasury of beautiful, beautiful things. And I want to close by reading a portion of a letter he wrote to a woman in his congregation who was grieving because this woman's sister was very, very ill. And I think I've got the quote up here. Yep, there it is. Thank you. So listen and read along with me what Newton writes to her. I think it's very relevant for our point this morning. Here's what he said. Your sister is very much upon my mind. Her illness grieves me. Were it in my power, I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope will, when it has answered the end for which he sent it. I wish you may be enabled to leave her and yourself and all your concerns in his hands. He has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, surely we shall confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. Now, here's the key. All shall work together for good. Everything that is needful, he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. That is the way to wholeness. That's the way to a life of joyous integrity. The way to life is to know and to trust and to consider that all shall work together for good. Everything that is needful, he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Our God, we love and thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you remind us again and again and again in the New Testament and Old Testament that you use the pain of our life, the trials that we undergo in life, the suffering that we experience, not to punish us, not to show that you're out to get us, but God, you use them for a good and holy purpose. That purpose is to produce in us a steadfastness that leads to wholeness, that leads to us being complete, that leads to us being perfect, lacking in nothing, just as Jesus himself was and is. And so, Father, we pray that we would, by your Holy Spirit's power, be able this morning and even this week to believe in the midst of difficulty and trial that your character is unchanging. You are for us. You have proved that to us in the gospel. And because all those things are true, we know, even though we don't pretend to understand it, the things you are sending us now are needful for us. They're needful for our long-term good. Father, we struggle. We struggle so deeply to believe these things, Lord. So we ask that you would help us to not turn on you, to not doubt you, to not be unstable and double-minded with regards to you, Father, but rather that you would form in us a deep wellspring of faith 
that acknowledges and believes that because you have sent us Jesus, everything else that you send us, whether we understand it or not in the moment, is for our long-term benefit, blessing, and joy. Help us to trust you in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.